This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. I'm Lior Strahilovitz. I'm uh, going to talk to you today about some work that I've uh, done with Ariel Porat, who's uh, full-time at Tel Aviv University, but luckily part-time here. Uh, and so uh, those of you who haven't already taken a class with Ariel, he comes every year, usually teaches in the fall. And uh, this is some of the crazy stuff that we hatch together when we're not teaching. Um, the topic of the uh, talk today is personalizing default rules and disclosure with big data. Um, we come at the, at the issue with sort of a variety of perspectives. We're mostly writing about contract law, but neither of us is a contract scholar. Uh, and yet, um, Ariel brought some great law and economic insights. And I've been thinking more broadly about the problem of big data and uh, diminished privacy and thinking about ways in which uh, law might arguably turn some of those uh, lemons into lemonade. So before getting into the substance of the proposal, uh, I want to just clarify a few definitions and terms that uh, I'll be using throughout the talk. When I refer to a default rule, I think that's probably a concept that a lot of you have encountered, but maybe not everyone. So we can just simply understand a default rule as a, uh, a, a kind of a gap filler. Uh, contracts or wills are often silent or they're ambiguous. And in the face of that silence, in the face of that ambiguity, the law needs to plug in some sort of a term and a default rule is uh, the, the terminology that's used to describe uh, what happens if there's no explicit contractual provision or what happens if the will is uh, silent or non-existent. Now, the key thing about default rules, this would be important, is that they can always be amended uh, by the individual, right? So it's just a starting point, and if you don't like the default rule, that's fine. Agree to something else uh, by specifying a term in a contract. Uh, disclosure, I think, probably needs less of a definition because it's a term we encounter every day. Uh, but the idea here is that a disclosure strategy is designed to push information out there that's relevant to a third party, a consumer or a citizen, for a decision uh, that they have to make. And then one final term or uh, phrase that I think uh, ought to be defined is big data. Uh, it's obviously a, a buzzword that gets used there. What... Um, data scientists usually mean when they refer to big data is the combination of uh, data mining and analytics. Okay, So use um, uh, some sort of scraping technology, uh, use an existing database that's proprietary or government database, uh, and crunch a great deal of numbers to discover patterns that might not otherwise be apparent if you were using a small database, and then use those patterns to try and figure out if you can make predictions about the future, about how individuals uh, will behave. So maybe you know, one of the most famous and successful uses of big data is the Netflix Cinematch algorithm, uh, which has gone through a couple of different generations, but is the state-of-the-art technology for trying to figure out what movies you're going to like or what TV shows you're going to like if you wind up viewing them. Uh, Netflix creates Cinematch using a big data strategy. They uh, amass millions and millions of movie ratings from their uh, enormous user base and then try and figure out um, not only what movies do people in general like, but what movies do people like you like, right? So if, um, you know, to take some examples from, uh, from this slide, 
uh, there are some suggestions that, you know, if you liked Man on a Wire, you might also like um, La Femme Nikita. Okay, that seems odd, uh, and yet uh, it turns out that um, uh, millions upon millions of Netflix users who liked Man on Wire predictably liked La Femme Nikita, and so on and so forth. Using this big data, you can identify uh, patterns. Sometimes you might be able to develop a good theoretical account for why those patterns exist, sometimes not. Netflix doesn't really care whether there's a pattern. They just care whether the predictions turn out to be accurate so as to keep their customers happy. Okay, so uh, there's two parts of this paper. I thought I'd start with what we consider the least controversial part and then move to the more controversial part. So we think the least controversial part is personalized disclosure. And it's a, new, it's a new strategy for doing disclosure. All right, so probably a number of you have attended talks, maybe even in this room, by Omri Ben-Shahar, uh, who has a book coming out very soon about some of the problems associated with mandated disclosure. And I think Omri's been very convincing in identifying ways in which disclosure simply doesn't live up to its billing as a strategy. The disclosures on uh, forms get longer and longer and longer, the language gets more and more impenetrable. And as a result, disclosure doesn't really accomplish anything because nobody actually reads the terms of uh, what's disclosed to them, except maybe lawyers who draft the darn stuff. Uh, but consumers certainly don't. And um, what Ariel and I argue is that many of the problems that Omri correctly identifies as problems of disclosure uh, are actually problems associated with the sorts of disclosure that we use today impersonalized disclosure, right? So an example I, uh, I like to play around with, uh, one of the pictures on the, on the slide in front of you says organic crunchy peanut butter. And if you look at the bottom, there's a not uh, unprominent allergy notice, allergy advice, may contain peanuts. Um, well, yes, uh, one would hope so. Um, but... Uh, uh, but there's, as we go through our, our lives and as we uh, play around with different consumer products, we're likely to encounter many, many either useless warnings or worse, really relevant warnings that we never read because they're buried amidst useless warnings. Um, some of those warnings in the pharmaceutical context, for example, which is something we'll come back to, might be highly relevant to some consumers. Pregnant women should not take this drug and totally irrelevant to other consumers, right? A 70-year-old man who lives alone doesn't need to read that warning, but might need to see the warning that's buried underneath it about elderly men with heart conditions. Okay, so what we say is perhaps the disclosure strategy can be um, rescued, and it can be rescued through what we call personalized disclosure, okay? So when disclosure is no more likely to be relevant to me than it is to you, we're both likely to not read the fine print. But what if we knew that uh, the disclosures that we saw were based on our own purchasing history, were based on our own attributes, our own demographics, our own characteristics? All of a sudden, the disclosures would get shorter and more relevant, and because both of those things would be likely, we'd be more likely to read them, and more likely to react, to respond, to learn about things we should or should not do with a particular product. So what we proposed in the paper is that um, uh, people be uh, sliced and diced uh, with big data. Uh, the diff- different demographic groups, the different behavioral profiles lend themselves to different kinds of warnings so that the relevant of those warnings, the relevant of those disclosures can be increased. Um, 
moreover, we might think that there are particular contexts in which the, the disclosure needs to happen. Right? Someone's life is potentially put at risk if the disclosure is ineffective. Right? So there are people, we, maybe people in this room, but uh, we all certainly have friends for whom this is true, who have extremely serious peanut allergies. Right? I happen to not have one, but uh, I've got dear friends who have se- severe peanut allergies. We want to make sure that they see those warnings. Right? So another sort of application of personalized disclosure would take advantage of the fact that we're increasingly shopping online or with smartphones when we go to stores. Uh, and we might imagine, again, a form of personalization that asks my per- peanut allergic friend, are you sure, are you really sure, when he's at the checkout counter, ready to pay for, an ing- for a granola bar that does, in fact, contain peanuts and poses a health risk uh, to him. So what we basically say in the paper is that the warning labels that we're used to are 20th century technologies, and that with all the data about all of us that's floating out there, with all of the slicing and dicing that Target and Netflix and Facebook are doing, there are opportunities here to do disclosure in a 21st century way. Uh, Let me give a legal example of that and show how this might uh, play out not only in consumer settings, but also in settings relevant to the ones that lawyers have to think about. A couple of years ago, the Fair Isaac Corporation, FICO, which is most famous for developing credit histories, credit scoring, uh, came up with a new product. It was called, initially, the FICO Adherence Score. I think they thought that was too Orwellian, so it's now the FICO Medication Adherence Scores. Um, And the idea was to take advantage of the information that FICO already had about each of us and generate a prediction for particular patients about which sorts of patients were likely to follow doctor's orders. And for example, if given a a vial with uh, 30 pills in it to be taken daily, to take each of those 30 pills once a day. It turns out, and FICO did a lot of testing to, uh, to reach this conclusion, it turns out that some of the same things that predict, some of the same attributes that predict whether we're going to fall behind on a loan or miss a payment of our utility bill, also predict whether we're likely to, in fact, take all the medications that our doctors direct us to take. So that's what FICO did. They're branching out from credit history to helping doctors and pharmacists predict which particular patients are likely to fully follow doctor's orders and which are not. So now let's suppose, and this is a hypothetical, but let's suppose uh, that there's a drug out there that's a beneficial drug. It's good at treating a particular condition. Um, It's kind of good if you take it for a few weeks. It's really good if you take it for longer than that, let's say prolonged use of a month. Um, Let's also say that there's a side effect, a pretty rare but serious side effect, one that arises only for those patients who take it for a prolonged period of time. So if you take it for two weeks, no chance of a side effect. If you take it for 45 days, it's a very small chance of a side effect, but a non-zero chance of a side effect. Um, all right, now let's imagine a couple patients. All right, so patient Robin, our first patient, uh, FICO spits out a 5% chance that Robin will actually take the medication consistently for a month. Um, just very, very low likelihood that Robin is going to do so. Uh, so if we do a little bit of back-of-the-envelope mathematics, we say, well, 5% chance of taking the, long, the drug long enough to trigger a 1 in 500,000 side effect. Essentially, the odds that Robin are going to encounter this particular side effect, 1 in 10 million. Negligible, right? Um, 
Second patient, patient Taylor, FICO predicts on the basis of, again, the medical adherence score algorithm, that there's a 95% chance that patient Taylor will actually take all 30 pills in the bottle, and therefore the side effect risk, uh, 1 in 526,000. Okay, so these two patients have very different profiles when it comes to the likelihood of this side effect manifesting itself. And what we want to say in this paper, what we do say in this paper, is that the law of informed consent should be sensitive to the difference between Robin and Taylor, right? Such that if a physician wants to say, it's important to inform Taylor of this possible side effect, and gee, there is some risk that Robin is facing, but the risk is so remote, and the consequences of that warning are real, that it's not worth doing. Right? So it's not just that a disclosure takes time for the, for the physician, although that's true, but it's also the case that when you make disclosures about drug side effects, then these can trigger psychosomatic effects. These can trigger uh, responses where people hear about a possible side effect, become very stressed, and then manifest the side effect, but not because of anything uh, that the drug is doing. Right? So if they didn't know about the risk, they wouldn't have developed uh, the side effect. There's also some contexts in which uh, we can identify circumstances in which the disclosure of risk to people causes them to uh, behave suboptimally, to stop um, acting in their own uh, self-interests. Sometimes, for example, people um, place undue weight on extremely low risks of very bad things happening. Uh, So there's a large literature in behavioral economics that focuses on that thing. But the key upside is we're willing to say something that the law really doesn't say by and large, which is that informed consent should be personalized uh, and not one size fits all. What we go on to say in the paper is that there are opportunities for the government, again, a government that employs an NSA that contains lots and lots, that has lots and lots of information about any of us, uh, to do more targeted warnings, to do more targeted disclosures than what we're used to. Right? So when there's uh, the release of um, uh, particulate matter from a, from a plant in excess of appropriate levels, Uh, that's not going to affect most of us, at least not if it's just a short-term event. That could really affect some of us, asthmatics, who are in the room. Well, uh, uh, we can imagine a regime where the government, the EPA, say, identifies a group of people who are particularly susceptible to uh, pollution spikes and warns them and only them of what's been happening at the local factory. We can imagine traffic hazard warnings, right, going out, based on uh, what the state or what your smartphone knows about your commuting patterns. Uh, We know that um, when someone signs up for military service, there are some soldiers, new recruits, who are predictably going to do quite well based on their personalities, based on other aspects of their their, uh, uh, characteristics um, and who they are. Uh, And we might imagine that particular recruits need to be exposed to particular warnings about uh, how well people with many of the same attributes of them have done in military service. Do people just like them, across a number of different dimensions, regret signing up for the military? Or do they think it was one of the best things they did in their lives? We'd like to see both sorts of disclosures uh, occur, uh, and for those disclosures to be heterogeneous, uh, tailored to the individual. Uh, When you sign up for an educational loan or when you sign up for a home mortgage, other types of borrowing. We can imagine lots of different ways in which you and I should be seeing different information, uh, and if we saw personalized information, we'd be more likely to pay it heed. 
Uh, so the idea here is basically that what the government does now is it puts out a whole bunch of information, tons of information, too much information, and nobody reads it, right? But what we're advocating is the government knowing something about the population of the citizenry and targeting particular information towards particular types of people. Uh, okay, so that was the first sort of part of the proposal. And the second part, the one I'll spend more ta- time talking about, is personalized default rules. Again, default rules are something we encounter every day. What I pulled up are Twitter's privacy and security settings. Uh, and it's going to ask you when you sign up for Twitter, or it's going to give you a set of default rules, right, about uh, uh, login notification and if you need to change your password. Is it going to be necessary to provide personal information in order to do so so that they can verify that you really are Lior Strahilovitz as opposed to someone else trying to hack your Twitter account? Uh, What about photo tagging? Should I allow myself to be tagged in photos? Should I not allow people to be tagged in my photos? Should I require individual consent in each instance where I'm tagged in a photo? All right, so uh, I've actually modified some uh, some of my Twitter default settings, as I'm sure some of you have, but most people leave their defaults in place. Defaults are sticky, is what a lot of research uh, suggests to us. And what we're saying is, okay, let's figure out ways in which, uh, using big data, the content of those defaults can be better personalized. So I'll start with an example from the law of inheritance. Um, Here again, the law is not entirely, but largely depersonalized. And yet, when we look at different populations, and what sorts of things they put in their wills. We do see some uh, patterns that emerge. And one of the most pronounced patterns is that men and women typically have different preferences for how their state should be divided up in the event that their spouse survives them. Okay? So uh, the literature suggests uh, that men are much more likely to leave the substantial bulk of their estates to their widows than women are to leave the substantial bulk of their estates uh, to widowers. Um, so both men are more likely to leave uh, uh, most of the money, and when they do leave money, they leave a higher percentage to their widows than the other way around. Nevertheless, with a few exceptions, uh, Michigan, for example, uh, continues to have a gender-sensitive uh, set of inheritance rules, but most states basically are gender-insensitive. And so if you die as a man, you die as a woman, the exact same things happen. Uh, So a crude form of personalization would say, well, wait a minute. To the extent that in the United States we see these consistent patterns of men and women behaving differently, and given that it's usually quite easy to figure out, right, someone's gender, this is an easily observable uh, characteristic, maybe the defaults ought to be different for people who don't create wills, for people who are dying uh, intestate without will. So that would be a form of crude personalization. And then what we say is, okay, you can get more fine-grained than that. right? You can go beyond just that one attribute, gender, and look at a whole bunch of different aspects of people's lives. Uh, how old are they? How well off are their kids? What's the na- how recently married are they? What's the nature of their relationship? How well off is their spouse? Etc., etc. How well off are their children? and run through a bunch of different attributes and create subgroups of people who uh, would become essentially the test cases uh, and have their particular preferences be given as the default for others who die without a will. Okay? So it says, rather than treating this all as one-size-fits-all, try and identify statistical regularities and use those regularities to create 10, 15 
different personalized default rules that different people would uh, get. Now, uh, if you talk to a trust and estates lawyer, they might tell you that they do something kind of like that, right? That when a client comes into their office, part of their job is to counsel a client based on what they know about that client's preferences, right? Being a good lawyer is figuring out how to personalize a will so that your client winds up being happy with what you put on paper and coming away satisfied that after their death, uh, their estate is going to be divvied up in the way that, uh, that they view as appropriate and uh, meaningful to them. Uh, but lawyers tend not to do this in a data-driven way. So what we're suggesting is that uh, uh, the process of trying to personalize be based not just on the lawyer's intuition based on having practiced in the area for 15, 20 years, but rather based on the choices that hundreds and thousands of people are making every day. And part of what we say is in this context, personalization might eventually work well enough so that a lot of people who presently feel the need to go ahead and draft a will might not need to, right? If you're sufficiently convinced that uh, there are people like you who've already spent the time thinking about these issues, then at the end of the day, you might be more comfortable foregoing the transaction costs associated with creating a will, foregoing some of the psychological costs associated with creating a will, which are real. People don't like to contemplate their death. Uh, and going with whatever people like you have already chosen. Obviously, that would just be a default. If you wanted to modify it, you could freely do so. But we're talking about what the starting point is when people uh, don't have a will. And we're talking about potential transaction cost savings that might enable some people to not have to get wills in the first place. Okay. So the broader proposal here, moving beyond the testamentary context, is to try and create this population. Guinea pigs uh, is, uh, is what we call them. And allow them to make a whole bunch of choices for us so that we don't have to. Okay? So when we get to consumer contracts, right, the problem is nobody reads. The problem is nobody has time to read. Right? It would be an enormous waste of time for us to read through the, uh, the user agreement that we consent to, at least the law tells us that we consent to them, every time we sign up for a new um, service on the internet or install a new app on our phone. Nobody does that. It'd be crazy for everyone to do this. Okay? But what we say is, let's take a small sample of the population. Right? Let's actually pay them to read all these terms, figure out which ones they like, figure out which ones they don't like, and then also pay them to take personality tests, to disclose information about their commercial transactions, their online behavior, what have you. All of it gets fit into a data set. And then you know, the one half of a 1% of the population that are the guinea pigs create a set of default rules, which we inherit. Again, we can modify them if we so choose. But if we don't want to modify them, we can trust that at least someone who's like us in a lot of different respects has actually thought about this issue, has actually read the terms, and agreed that the terms provided to them uh, are appropriate, so perhaps we can trust that they're appropriately applied to us. Um, we suggest a couple of different ways in which this might be done. Uh, firms can, of course, do this for themselves right now, but uh, particularly in those settings where firms have market power, we might worry that the terms that firms are giving consumers are more in the firm's interest than in consumers' interests. Uh, that should be less the case in a competitive market, but in a less competitive market, that would be a danger. And so you might imagine a role for a third party, like the Federal Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, 
to go ahead and test in a rigorous way various different contractual default terms and then go ahead and figure out which sorts of consumers should be assigned them as a default at the first instance. Okay, so in this paper, we're going to assume that big data is here, that it's here to stay, it's not going anywhere. Uh, that's less true in Europe, where the government's uh, been regulating in the area of, uh, of big data more aggressively. Uh, but in the United States, the approach is by and large a laissez-faire approach. Uh, and what we say is, look, that may be good, that may be bad. In the paper, I think we're agnostic about it. But we figure, well, at least we should capture those potential benefits of this uh, economic development, this technological benefits uh, for the legal system. And one of the things that we'll argue in the paper uh, is that as uh, big data matures, a lot of what we can understand big data is doing is surreptitiously administering psychological tests to the entire population without uh, their knowledge or consent. Um, so let me do a, a quick uh, uh, detour, except it's not really a detour, into social psychology. Okay? So um, as, as big data sort of continues to uh, develop, one of the things that we're seeing researchers identify are particular correlations between observed behavior in the real world, ways in which people use Facebook or their smartphones, as we'll talk about in a second, and uh, what are called the big five. Uh, the big five are the um, characteristics of personality that psychologists have been using for a good 40 years now. Um, some of you may have encountered the Myers-Briggs uh, psych for psychological formula. That's sort of an inferior version of the big five. Somebody did a, uh, an amazing thing, which is they took something that was in the public domain, they changed it a little bit, proprietized it. It was worse, but they managed to charge money for it. I don't know how they did that. It's a good business model, I guess, if you can pull it off. Um, unlike Myers-Briggs, which has, I think, uh, some validity in the psychological literature, the big five has a great deal of validity. Um, uh, and uh, uh, you know, these five characteristics, extroversion, neuroticism, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness, uh, tend to uh, robustly and cross cultures uh, predict particular kinds of observed behavior. All right? So uh, there's a number of pa papers in business and elsewhere that try and predict whether people will be successful managers at firms, whether uh, their students who are likely to drop out, uh, whether someone's likely to become a politician or a bureaucrat, whether they're likely to share information about themselves on social networks, etc., all on the basis of how people score on these big five measures of personality. Uh, we also know from the literature that scores on big five metrics tend to be uh, moderately to highly stable over the life cycle in longitudinal studies, um, such that if I'm highly conscientious as an 18-year-old, I'm likely to be highly conscientious as a 45-year-old, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, I do, I do want to say, and this will come up in a minute, uh, the big five isn't the only valid way of uh, characterizing people's personalities. Uh, another uh, scale that was uh, subsequently developed is uh, the so-called authoritarian, authoritarianism scales. Uh, and I'll show in a little bit how that authoritarianism scale might be used to predict other sorts of behaviors and other sorts of preference with respect to default rules. Okay? So I referenced smartphones and Facebooks. Let me show you a couple of really great uh, recent research papers on that topic. So there's a nice paper from a few years ago by Chitaranjan Bloom and Gattaca Perez that did something kind of neat. Um, they uh, administered 
psychological big five profile tests uh, to a large sample of users. And then they gave all those users smartphones for several months and said, okay, go ahead and use a smartphone. It's free. Play around with it as much as you like. They then, after crunching an enormous amount of data about how people were using their smartphones, went back to the personality profiling test and said, okay, can we identify particular uh, attributes, uh, psychological profiles, based on how people are using their phones? And they turned out that, yeah, you could. Uh, So extroverts receive more calls, substantially more calls, and spend more time on the phone than introverts. Um, Agreeable women receive more calls. Agreeable men don't receive more calls, but they make more calls to more people. Um, (laughs) Conscientious people uh, use their email application more frequently. Um, These are the sorts of people who are just, oh, you know, work email, got to go ahead and, and send a response right away. Uh, Neurotic individuals received fewer incoming text messages, okay? Uh, And then uh, you can even look to see who's adjusting the default ringtone on their phone. And if they're picking some weird ringtone, they're probably someone who rates as high with respect to openness to new experiences, okay? So if you're AT&T, if you're Verizon, if you're Apple, you've got an enormous data set, And you can use that data set to try and figure out some of the psychological characteristics of your users. Uh, Same thing if you're uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, So uh, there's another relatively recent paper by Bachrach, Kaczynski, Grapel, Coley, and Stilwell that does the same thing with uh, use on Facebook. Finds that highly extroverted people are making uh, lots of status updates They've got more interactions with people. They've got larger networks of friends. I think none of these are counterintuitive. They're all intuitive, but now we know. Um, Agreeable people are tagged more frequently in photos. Uh, Neurotic people like everything on Facebook. So do highly open people. Um, And uh, when the authors, Backrack et al., built a model, they could actually predict uh, about a third of extroversion Using, people, uh, using people's behavior on Facebook. And they could re- predict about a quarter of neuroticism with the same database. Now, for social sciences, that's quite a lot. Um, th- those are quite powerful models that they've built. They can't explain everything with respect to psychological profiles, but they can explain uh, quite a lot. Okay, so what uh, we said in this paper is, all right, given that you can use Facebook smartphones, all these other things to try and identify particular types of personalities and particular types of people, are there personality factors that might predict preferences for default rules? Okay, so that's the next step in our project. We've started to say a little bit about that in this, uh, in this paper that I'm talking about today, and I expect that we'll say uh, more uh, in the coming years as we continue to research the question. All right, so um, uh, we started off with a... Um, uh, with a, a question about organ donation, right? So there's a big, uh, a, a huge debate in the legal literature about what the right default is for organ donation, right? Should people be organ donors by default? You're an organ donor until you say otherwise. Or should they be non-donors by default? You're not a donor unless you specify that you want to be an organ donor. Uh, it's a big problem because 18 Americans die every day waiting for an organ transplant. The stakes are enormous. Uh, and there's variation among different nations with respect to what the default is. Uh, the United States is a, um, is a, you have to opt in to organ donation regime, 
And 28% of Americans, based on the best estimate, appear to be organ donors. 28% are um, uh, so you know, a not insubstantial minority. When we look cross-nationally, we can see that the default rule makes a huge difference. Right? So countries like France, Hungary, Poland, those nations are organ donation by default. You have to opt out of uh, your organs being used in transplantation. What are the rates of donation in those countries? Upwards of 99%, extraordinarily high. Uh, by the same token, organ transplantation waiting lists, very short there. Uh, there are other countries, right? Denmark, uh, 4%. Um, Germany, 12%, even lower than the U.S. United Kingdom, 17%. Not coincidentally, those are all nations in which you have to opt in to be an, being an organ donor, and those are all nations in which the organ donor waiting li- the organ transplantation waiting lists are much, much um, longer. And people die as a result. So do we know anything about the personalities of donors? Now, um, Chicago's best ideas sometimes come from faculty. They sometimes come from students. Uh, and so I want to um, uh, highlight uh, that the next few slides are based on a um, potential proof of con- concept study I did with one of our two L's, uh, Matthew Kugler, where we said, okay, let's try uh, a survey and let's um, see if we can identify those psychological attributes that correlate with organ donation and with views about what the appropriate default rule should be. All right. So uh, we tried big five, and it was all noisy. Right? There was, although some of the literature suggests that there may be correlations between organ donation propensities and big five characteristics, we found none. We couldn't replicate those results. But what we did find is some pretty, are some pretty strong correlations uh, with two variables. One, the authoritarianism traditionalism test. Uh, and two, whether individuals self-identified as socially liberal or socially conservative. Right? So um, individuals who score... Uh, as highly traditionalist, very unlikely, or relatively unlikely to be uh, organ donors. Uh, People who score as highly anti-traditionalist, much more likely to be organ donors. And by the same token, people who identify themselves as socially liberal, more likely to be organ donors. People who identify themselves as socially conservative, less likely to be organ donors. Um, And these results were highly significant. Uh, Okay, so what's the proper default? If you looked at our overall sample pool, uh, most Americans agreed that the American rule is right. Okay? So 64% of our sample said the right rule is that you should have to opt in to being an organ donor, although you know, a little more than a third, 36%, said no, the right rule is the French rule, the Polish rule. It ought to be presumed consent, presumably because we'll get more organs uh, used that way and lives will be saved as a result. Okay, so that wasn't surprising. Uh, we're, not, we're not at all surprised that opt-in is, um, is the preferred option for most of the people on our sample. But what happens when you break that down? Again, I think not terribly surprisingly, people who are not organ donors and have no intention of becoming organ donors, they're much more strongly opposed to switching to presumed consent than people who are already donors. I think this is fully rational. It is kind of interesting that 8% of the population are non-donors, but they would favor presumed consent. Uh, It's interesting, but we can explain that. That's not an irrational set of preferences. Um, And what we think going on here is that uh, what's interesting is that even people who are themselves organ donors um, uh, favor a rule of opt-in. 
Okay? Why is that? If anything, you would say, well, if I'm an organ donor, maybe I should favor opt-out because it would save me the trouble of opting. Yes, but I think donors recognize uh, that, they're in the ma- in, that they're in the minority, and they favor a majoritarian default rule um, because they recognize that the costs imposed on people who don't want to be donors but then find themselves through inertia becoming donors would be significant. Okay, so again, if you look at the overall population, very clear majority in favor of keeping the status quo, and even organ donors and people who say they intend to become donors, only 36% of them favor presumed consent. Okay, so um, we then said, well, all right, so it's interesting. So we can identify social conservatives and traditionalists as people who are unlikely to be donors. Do the same groups of people also oppose presumed consent? And we ran those numbers and got, again, very similar results. Okay? So it's not just that social conservatives and traditionalists um, don't want to be organ donors, but they're also much more strongly opposed to switching away from the current regime towards a regime of presumed consent. They have different attitudes about default rules. So we take away from this um, uh, some interesting uh, findings, uh, but an important caveat. Okay? So what this tells us is we can explain about 9% of the variation in whether people are organ donors or are not organ donors based on a single attribute, right? Whether they score highly as uh, traditionalists or lowly as traditionalists. That's pretty good. But given that most people in the United States are not organ donors, only 28% are, according to the surveys, even if we take people who are anti-traditionalist, we'll find that most of them are not organ donors, don't intend to become organ donors. All right? So organ donation is a default rule where the country is pretty far away from 50-50. Where the country 50-50, we could say, all right, let's have one rule for traditionalists, opt-in, and another rule for non-traditionalists, presumed consent. Right? That would make sense. We're not there yet because we're so far away from 50-50. The closer you get to an evenly divided larger population, the easier it is to create a personalized default rule that's targeted to the heterogeneous preferences of different groups of people. All right, I want to leave lots of time for, um, uh, for questions and comments, but let me just run through a few uh, objections and limitations, and I'll highlight these, and I anticipate a lot of you are going to identify other problems or want to talk about some of the ones that we mentioned. I think one obvious response is ick, uh, you know, uh, what happened to privacy? Uh, I don't know what happened to privacy. I'll teach a course next year that'll try and figure that out. But, um, uh, but we don't think that anything that we're proposing with respect to personalization of default rules or personalization of disclosure is going to have impact on whether big data grows or, or shrinks away. It's happening, right? Um, and uh, our approach says, well, given that it's happening, let's see if we can use the fact that it's happening to generate legal regimes that are better tailored to what people actually want and that might save on transaction costs. Um, now, I think an, a, a, another serious objection, though, is one about strategic behavior. Okay? You might worry that if my Netflix movie ratings and... Um, my credit history and all these other things are being used to generate a set of personalized default rules, then people will start trying to rent different movies or, I don't know, pay their bills on time 
in order to get a more favorable set of default rules. Okay? That's uh, a possibility, although we think um, it would be a real problem were we to pro- propose a system of, per- of personalized mandatory rules. It's less of an issue given that we're just dealing with personalized default rules, which are ultimately modifiable. Okay? So what we mean by that, to translate that into English, is we don't think people are going to start renting movies they don't want to see and uh, signing up for services that they don't actually want to purchase in order to get a favorable set of default terms. They're just going to specify the default terms that they want when negotiating with their vendors. It's costly to watch a whole bunch of movies you don't want to see. Right? So we think the dangers of strategic behavior, at least where we're talking about default or disclosure, uh, are minimal. But we think it's a, the worry about strategic behavior is a good reason to not use our approach for generating mandatory rules that can't be altered by the individual consumer or the firm that uh, she's contracting with. Okay? Now, I think maybe a, uh, the most serious objection or the most serious concern is one about uncertainty. So we've got a whole series of default rules that are built into the legal system today. And they, um, uh, you know, at some cost, you can figure out what the default rules are. You can figure out whether you're opting in to do not track or opting out of do not track by default. You can figure out whether when you buy an item from a store, you have a right to return it or not. All these things are specified, maybe in the Uniform Commercial Code, maybe by uh, state contract law. These defaults are out there. They're discoverable if you're legally sophisticated. Um, what we're suggesting is a regime where there's not one right answer, but the right default rule depends on who you are. And that's uh, going to raise the complexity of figuring out what rule applies to you. Okay? So for those reasons, um, we think that the details of how personalization is done really matter. And one of the things that we talk about in the paper that um, I'm happy to get into in the Q&A are ways in which that uncertainty can be ameliorated through the transactions that we engage in with vendors. Okay? So by this, we mean uh, the following. Uh, it's not the case that when you buy a lamp at Target, right, you're leaving Target wondering whether you have a right to return the thing within 15 days or not. Okay? Target might give you a personalized right of return, Maybe really long if you're unlikely to use it. Maybe really short if you're very likely to use it or abuse it. Uh, We don't know how Target's going to ultimately generate the personalized rules they come up with. But we're going to insist that the consumer has the right to know all of the personalized rules at the point of sale if he or she wants to know those rules. Okay? So, um, uh, you know, ideally you're not standing behind this person in in the checkout line. Uh, But if somebody wants to find out exactly what the right of return is, um, what the warranty is, all these things. And if those terms are being generated by a personalized process, then the consumer has the right to see those terms, to walk away from the transaction if she doesn't like those terms, or to be um, uh, willing to modify those terms, perhaps uh, uh, in exchange for a different price on the product at the point of sale. Uh, So essentially what we're saying is the default terms should be locked in at the point of the transaction, Nothing that happens after the transaction is going to affect those default rules. But the choices of the guinea pigs that were made before the transaction was entered into might provide the content that's ultimately disclosed to the consumer at the point of sale if the consumer would like to learn precisely what rules are going to govern the relationship. Um, Let me just make a couple other points and then open things up for uh, questions. So start thinking of questions now. Um, We talk about in the paper instances 
in which the most efficient rule is not necessarily the rule that society wants to adopt, maybe for reasons having to do with fundamental human values. Okay, and we're, uh, we're sensitive to this. So let me give you an example. Uh, most American women accept the surnames of their husbands at the time they get married. Actually, it's a strong majority of American women who do this. Um, you might say, well, the transaction costs of having women adopt their husbands' names by default, transaction cost savings would be substantial. So in the United States, women should just immediately, as soon as they say, I do, they get their husband's name. We don't think it's a good idea. We don't think it's appropriate. Not because most women wouldn't want it. Most women apparently would want it, because it would save them the trouble of having to change their name. But if you read the feminist uh, literature, the historical work, there's a suggestion in the literature, which we take quite seriously, that the reason women's preferences, by and large, are to accept their husbands' surnames, have to do with the historical subordination of women. Okay? It doesn't mean that everyone who makes that decision is doing so for reasons having to do with subordination, but the history matters, creates a set of norms that might affect the choices that, women's make, that women make. We think it's dangerous to have the government put a thumb on the scale on behalf of preferences which, while widely, while widely adhered to, might have unsettling historical uh, origins. Okay? So what we say is, look, that's an example where we want to uh, perhaps defend the law's decision to continue to adhere to, adhere to an anti-majoritarian uh, default rule, even though it means that lots of American women are going to have to go down to the you know, county clerk's office and fill out a bunch of paperwork that they wouldn't have to fill out if the rule were majoritarian. Now, we think that the, um, the cruder uh, default rule is, the cruder form of personalization, the more serious these concerns are likely to be, right? Um, so maybe, I'm not sure if this is right, but maybe if there's 12 factors determining whether you're adopting your husband's name or your wife's name, for that matter, upon getting married, maybe that's less troubling than if it's just based on gender. And indeed, what we say in the paper is, wouldn't it be neat if we could drill down and find a particular subpopulation of men who actually prefer to adopt their wives' names upon marriage, right? Find, you know, vegan uh, philosophy PhDs in Berkeley or something, and it turns out, I don't know, 70% of them adopt their wives' names on get, upon marriage. Great. You know, give them, uh, give them that default rule, and then we don't have the anti-subordination worry uh, uh, jumping up and down at us. Okay, the last thing that we worry about is if you control the guinea pigs, to some extent, you control the world. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, particularly where firms have market power, there's a danger that they will present options to the guinea pigs in a way that causes the guinea pigs to choose things that are beneficial for the corporation and not beneficial for the guinea pigs, not beneficial for all of us who are relying on the guinea pigs to get it more or less right. Okay? Uh, you know, there's lots of things you can do with framing terms right, to get people to shift away from what they probably ought to prefer towards what you, the person framing the question, in fact do prefer. And for that reason, we think someone without a vested financial interest either a regulatory agency or perhaps academics, might be in the best position to, um, uh, to control the guinea pigs and therefore control the world. Uh, okay, so um, 
you know, I think the last thing worth emphasizing is that personalization is itself a default. So let's say you hear this and you're horrified. You think this is a terrible idea. What we would say is, if you, great. If you think it's a terrible idea, you just have to check one box one time that says, I reject personalization. I'm opting out of all of this. This horrifies me. I just want the majoritarian default, or I just want whatever the default the company is going to give me, or any of these other things. We don't want to force anyone to agree to this personalization, but we do think there may be substantial savings that arise if people have the option, and maybe even if the government is pushing the law in the direction of greater personalization uh, based on profiles and big data. So this paper, uh, we just actually signed off on the galley proofs uh, this morning. Uh, it's going to be coming out in the Michigan Law Review in a few months. And uh, you can find an earlier draft of it on SSRN if you want to expose yourself to the argument in all 70 pages of its glory. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.